ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. At Vanguard, clients are more than investors, they're owners. That means we always seek to focus on client objectives, aligning our goals with investor goals, and staying disciplined. Vanguard Fixed Income Investors own low-cost products that reflect these priorities, which can enhance outcomes. That's the value of ownership. Visit Vanguard.com to obtain a fund prospectus or, if available, a summary prospectus which contains investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and other information. Read and consider carefully before investing. All investing is subject to risk. Fund shareholders own the funds which own Vanguard. Investments in bond funds are subject to interest rate, credit, and inflation risk. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, I have simply a fantastic show this week. Really excited about this. Joining me will be Mark Yusko, founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management, who currently oversees about $2 billion in assets. But back in February, they launched their second ETF, the Morgan Creek Exos Active SPAC Arbitrage ETF, ticker symbol CSH. Now, that followed another ETF they launched last year, the Morgan Creek Exo SPAC originated ETF, ticker symbol SPXZ. And I'm sure some of you are already thinking, uh, you, you hear SPACs, that doesn't sound so good right now given the current market environment. Uh, I think many would say there was a bubble in SPACs that has since popped. However, these two ETFs do completely different things. So one does have direct exposure to the risk in this space, but the other one is much different. And so Mark's going to walk us through both of those ETFs. And then not only that, Mark is portfolio manager on a new crypto ETF that launched in April, the Advisor Shares Managed Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker CRYP. And of course, that's another space, crypto that's not faring so well at the moment. So we're going to get into all of this, uh, SPACs, crypto. We'll hear Mark's views on the current market. And I'm guessing many of you are already familiar with Mark. He's pretty prominent uh, out in the media. Of course, he was previously chief investment officer of the University of North Carolina Endowment. But I'll just tell you, he's not one to shy away from these types of conversations. So really looking forward to hearing what he has to say right now. Also joining me this week will be the president of the fastest-growing ETF issuer this year, Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs, who has actually jumped assets about $5 billion already in 2022. And if you look at why that is, their Cash Cow series of ETFs has really done a lot of the heavy lifting here. So we'll take a look at those and also some of the other ETFs in Pacer's lineup uh, they they do have some unique ETFs, and, and actually, as I thought about this, their lineup is pretty well situated for the type of market environment we're in. So it makes sense they're doing so well this year, and I think that'll come across when I visit with Sean. Now, to start this week, I have the ETF Jedi, Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify on the line with me. I feel like it's been a little while since uh, Dave and I last chatted. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I need to apologize today, too. The topic is crypto and uh, Bitcoin ETFs. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, can you tell I'm just a little bit excited about this week? (laughs) Or are you just a little bit done talking about crypto? One or the other, I can't tell. Well, where, where is your temperature right now? Like, are you fatigued on this topic? Because I, I think, as you know, I catch a lot of flack for my um, incessant coverage of this. I think I've basically branded myself as the Bitcoin ETF guy. So I'll be honest, I'm just embracing this now. right? But do I owe you an apology here? Not not at all. I, I actually managed to take a couple of weeks off. So I managed to miss most of the last two weeks shenanigans, uh, which was a great uh, it was a great relief to be away from. But also what an entertaining sandbox to jump back into after two weeks. So much has happened. Uh, so much both validation and sort of, you know, creative destruction happening. I don't want to minimize the real pain that the drawdown has had for a lot of folks. I'm not doing that at all. Obviously, folks are losing their jobs and things like that. Uh, but hey, it's absolutely still the most interesting thing going on in finance. And that's kind of my job at Vetify is paying attention to all that stuff. Well, I think there's a lot of different directions we can head. But um, I, I think we have to start with a speech last week from SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, uh, a.k.a. Crypto yeah. Mom. So she delivered some very fiery remarks at the Regulatory Transparency Project Conference on regulating the new crypto ecosystem necessary regulation or crippling future innovation. Say that a few times quickly. That's quite the (laughs) conference name. But I I think most people who follow the ETF space are uh, well aware Hester has been an outspoken proponent of a spot Bitcoin ETF and really uh, advocating for crypto as a whole. Now, of course, as you were alluding to, this speech does come with a backdrop of a uh, complete bloodbath in crypto right now, where I would say the lack of regulation is uh, being exposed, right? And we can get into that if you want. But but let's just start with your initial impressions of this speech. Were, were you as blown away by it as I was? I wasn't blown away by the fact that she was taking these positions, right? She's been very vocal, uh, you know, for the last four or five years on this issue. Um, it was one of the most direct sort of assaults on the SEC's reaction to crypto um, that I've read anywhere, honestly. And so to hear it coming from a commissioner was very surprising. Uh, I think in its in its brevity and its pointedness, uh, it was it was a bit of a sea change because this was not a uh, you know their disagreements and were you know taking things under advisement. It had none of the somewhat hedgy language she has often used in the past, and was really just a direct assault on the process her own organization has taken uh, with receipts. I mean, you know. You know, one of the things I love about, you know, speeches coming from federal federal regulators is they're often published in advance and are fully footnoted, which obviously you don't get when you hear it live. Uh, but this had the receipts. It was line by line by line. Here's where we screwed this up. Here's why this doesn't make sense. Here's the here's laid bare our own hypocrisy. And I think that's what was surprising, just how direct it was. You wonder what SEC chair Gary Gensler thinks seeing a speech like this. I mean, it does seem unusual to see an SEC commissioner in Hester Pierce this outspoken against the agency's overall stance on something as high profile as crypto. And and I would say, at least from my perspective, she's been 100% respectful in the way she's gone about it. It's not like she's venomous out there. And But, but you're right, she has the receipts. And I just feel like um, a government agency would really prefer having their people all rowing in the same direction uh, so I, I found it odd just how fiery this was. Let, let me ask you this, as it pertains to a spot Bitcoin ETF in particular, which really was the thrust of, of this speech. And I tweeted this out last week. Um, to me, the single most important part was one sentence. And I want to read that for you. So Hester said, quote, the commission's willingness to be persuaded turns on whether the commission's primary concern is legal and logical coherence with our approvals of Bitcoin futures products and other commodity-based products, and not, say, using the prospect of a spot Bitcoin ETP approval as an inducement to get exchanges to come in and register. So in other words, I read that as Hester saying, look, basically there's no uh, legal reason not to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, But the SEC is sort of holding back that approval 
as a way to get crypto exchanges to come in and, and, and be regulated. Do you think that's what this all boils down to? I, I think that's, well, certainly I'm not going to disagree with the commissioner on what she thinks the SEC's motivations are, right? She has a much, she has a much clearer view into that coffee shop than I do. Um, however, you know, I think uh, in pointing out the hypocrisy really around this key issue about 40 Act protection, that's where she really dug in hard. And, and I appreciated how detailed she was in that because a lot of times public speeches like this, uh, regulators are reluctant to get deep into the weeds, but she called out very explicitly hey, we leaned on this 40 Act protection stuff for a long time. And then we just approved a non-40 Act futures-based product. We've clearly now proven we don't care about the 40 Act uh, pieces of this, which means what is left, right? It is, it is a bit of this sort of open, uh, almost sort of a brutality towards regulation through enforcement, which is something, to be clear, she has been against her whole career. Um, you know, she comes from a think tank background where she spent a lot of her efforts trying to sort of remove regulation through enforcement and and sort of the what, what she is perceived and, and what many perceive as, as sort of excessive uh, or sort of regulatory fiat, uh, not to confuse that word. Um, so I appreciated that she went there. Um, I didn't get the sense that this was all hanging on that one issue. I think it is all hanging on this issue about manipulation and surveillance, right? She lays out that case very clearly. We've heard that over and over again in both responses and uh, you know some public statements. This issue about whether or not the underlying can be manipulated and how to prove it won't be is, is I think, been the whole shoot and match for a long time. And she laid out very clearly the two paths. One is everybody has to come in and prove that they're both big enough and willing to be surveilled, or you have to prove that there is some sort of inherent non-manipulatability in the underlying, both of which are ridiculously high bars, honestly. Um, so so whether we get there or not, I, I don't actually think this moves the needle. I don't think this suddenly, um, her being this much more direct means we're going to see an approval next week. Uh, but I do think it lays out the groundwork for lawsuits. And really, I think this gets back into just regulation across the entire space. And on that note, do you think the current uh, crypto market environment changes anything here? Because we are seeing some huge blowups in the crypto space. Investors are losing a boatload of money. Do you think that might accelerate uh, the regulatory process here? Which you and I have talked about this in, pa in the past. It's moved extremely <laughs> slow up until this point. Uh, the government doesn't move swiftly, but does the current crypto environment maybe light a fire here? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think with a little bit of perspective, uh, I think we have to think about what's really happened in crypto. Sure. Uh, you know, the value of a Bitcoin is now, what are we at? 21,000, something like that. We dipped under the magic 20,000 level and came back. It, when she published the speech, she mentioned the price was 2250, right? So it, it, that damage had already been done when she was starting to make the speech. Um, I don't think that this somehow makes a huge difference, largely because despite the sell-off, the true carnage has happened in what I would call some of the more corner case parts of the crypto ecosystem. Um, a lot of stuff is still working. Um, it's not like every uh, crypto project all of, a sudden, all of a sudden failed. Instead, what we saw, whether it was what went on with Luna or Solana or you know any of the, the sort of number of hiccups we've had here, we've learned a bunch of stuff. And I actually think that's very positive, right? Part of the reason DeFi has been such an interesting sandbox is because we've been able to test some of these hypotheses about you know whether or not your protocol is whale proof well we've seen a lot of stuff around that particularly around Solana over the last couple of days um, you know uh, the importance of actually having rule of law and collateralization of, of multi-asset uh, uh, multi-asset systems like stable coins I think we'll see some movement there because of that I think I've been saying Nate I think last year I've been saying I think stablecoin regulations probably the first real shoe to drop I think that is more likely now perhaps than it was a month ago. But I don't think this changes the entire landscape just because we've had a pullback. No, I agree. I know it's a cliche example that a lot of people have used, but I think there are really strong parallels here to the dot-com bubble where you, you, you had a lot of froth in the space, but you had remarkable innovation at the same time. And it, it took a cleansing of the system for the best parts of that innovation to to make their way up to the uh you know to the surface so to speak so i, I think that's what yeah, we're seeing here this is the space is not going away 
Yeah, and I think also one of the thing, one another parallel from the dot com era, which I think is a positive, um, is one of the things that got that, that sort of happened in two thousand, where things got ahead of themselves, was everything became about making money very quickly, and that's exactly what happened in crypto in the last couple of years. Capital became everything. Experimentation was only happening in the service of fast moving, fast buck ecosystems. Um, that's kind of what happened in two thousand in the dot com era too. We needed to shake some of that out of the trees, if you will, back then. I think we've shaken a lot of that out of the trees now. Uh, and what survives there, I mean, it, it is a bit of a cliche to say, you know, you go through fire and you come out stronger, all that jazz. But but there's some truth to it, too. You know, like I, a couple articles I was reading this weekend sort of pointing out some of these sort of quieter crypto projects doing cross-border payments for energy and food and like like legit applications. They're not sexy because they're not 20% yield farming systems, but there's still a lot of great applications here. And we're learning a lot about how to harden systems and about how to make those systems support an intended utility, not just to develop a network effect. All right. With our remaining time here, um, as I've been known to do sometimes when you're on the podcast, I did solicit some Twitter questions for us to get to. And as always, people came through, which I appreciate. Thank you for those who uh, submitted questions. Um, but no surprise, Dave, given the people who follow me, we did get a number of crypto and Bitcoin ETF <laughs> questions. So I made a uh, an editorial decision here to focus on these, especially given Hester's speech and everything going on in crypto. I'll be tar- talking with uh, Mark Yusko here in a few minutes on crypto. Um, however, before I get to those questions, I just want to be clear. You, you were alluding to this earlier, and I think I'm 99.9% sure I know your answer. But the SEC does have a decision to make on two spot Bitcoin ETF filings over the next, uh, what, two weeks or so. So there's one from Bitwise. I believe a decision is due on that by June 29th. And then Grayscale has their filing to convert the uh, Bitcoin Trust GBTC into an ETF. The deadline on that is July 6th. So just to, to set the table here, do you see any chance either or both of those is approved? No, I think they both get rejected. And I think the important one is the grayscale one, because I think when that gets rejected, they probably sort of finalize filing their Administrative Procedures Act lawsuit um, against the SEC, which is when things start getting really interesting, to be honest. OK, so that's perfect. Right? No, because that's actually see you. You led me right into this. So. Uh, we One of the questions we got was from a Slapdash, at Slapdash, and they asked the following. Let, let me read this to you. Assuming the SEC rejects Grayscale's ETF application and there's a lawsuit from Grayscale, how quickly might you expect a court decision? They also asked, what's the range of outcomes and timelines? Have there been similar qu- uh, cases out there? And so a, a lot of questions here, but I'll just boil this down for you in, in, in that, you know, what will you be watching for if Grayscale does move forward with a lawsuit. What what can we all expect from this? Well, nobody should expect anything to happen quickly, right? <laughs> That's the first thing. Once it gets into the court system, we're now talking about a multi-year process, right? Because the, they've, I believe the, I'm not a lawyer, super, you know, disclaimer, right? But but I follow a lot of regulatory legal issues for a living. Um, I believe they have to file in federal district first, right? That's where these cases are brought. Um, yes, this happens quite frequently. And in fact, the SEC has been sued quite a few times in the last few years and not done very well. I would say, actually, they've been a bit on their heels. Um, There's a court case going right up now against the Supreme Court um, at the Supreme Court, which is not on this specific issue. It's not a specific, you know, APA filing. But they all come down to this issue of how much capriciousness, how much latitude do regulators have to enact regulation X, a legislative intent, meaning without Congress saying go do X, how much room does the SEC to effectively make up new rules and then enforce them? And does it matter which they do first? Can they enforce something and then say that was the rule? Um, there's actually a lot of precedent that that gives enormous latitude to regulatory agencies. The Chevron is the big Supreme Court case that sort of backs up a lot of that. Um, and there have been a number of other ones, too. Uh, I think that this could uh, be a big case if it went, but it would be multi-year because it would have to go to the Supreme Court before anybody would actually make a decision here, um, short of uh, uh, you know a settlement of some sort. But I, I can't see that. Settlements tend to go the other way when the SEC sues somebody else. Here, effectively, they'd be being accused of abusing their regulatory authority, extre- you know, extending their mandate beyond what Congress intended. 
and that's a real tough thing to prove. It's worth pointing out that the sort of newly benched justices and Clarence Thomas have been pretty against Chevron and all of those sort of regulatory um, sort of deference uh, precedents. Uh, so it's the kind of thing they might really want to get their, you know, their teeth into if it got that far. I'm not sure I see it dragging out for three or four years and becoming giant Supreme Court precedent. It could. I think it's more likely we actually end up with some decent crypto regulation before that. No, I agree. I mean, if it's going to be tied up in the courts for several years, we may just have a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, I think I think I think we solve these problems before we get through all of that. That being said, I think it's a really interesting issue. This issue of um, you know regulators and separate justice systems and uh, you know trying to sort of regulate through enforcement. I think these are real issues for the modern world, um, and they're 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 issues that surprisingly cross a lot of boundaries. Both the left and the right have been on both sides of these issues, depending on which court case you want to look at. By the way, going back to uh, Hester's speech, I, I said this on Twitter, but I can't help but wonder. If a speech like that from an SEC commissioner could actually um, help Grayscale, right? Like, like I'm no attorney either, but do you think it's it's good for the SEC to have one of their commissioners putting those sorts of comments out there in the public domain if they end up having to to try to defend against the lawsuit? That doesn't seem well. It, that was that was sort of the that was sort of the point I was making. Is like I think it's enormously helpful in a lawsuit environment to have this in the public record that there was clearly dissent within the regulator itself. Of course, that's helpful in making a case. Uh, now, a, a, again, when you get get to the edges of this, I do think it's a matter of interpretation. I don't think this is a like, obviously, this is subtle law. Um, and so I think it would be an opportunity for a court to put a stamp on regulation uh, in a fairly deregulatory way. Uh, but that's not really the point here. The point is, like, let's get back to what we're talking about, which is let's get investors access to an asset class that just turned out to be useful, um, you know, at least to some set of investors. I think we get there before something like this rolls all the way through the Supreme Court. Yeah. And so I, I guess on that note, let's assume the bitwise and grayscale filings uh, are disapproved. And I, I know we discussed this at the um, the exchange conference, but sentiment can change quickly, especially in crypto. And we did get uh, a couple of Twitter questions on this. Uh, one from at James Shwee 8 and one from Metacrypt. But but here's the question. When spot Bitcoin ETF? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still a 2023 buyer on this. I just I, I don't see anything happening this year. Um, I think uh, post the midterms, it's not inconceivable. We get some clarity and we just throw things firmly into the CFTC, which I think is where things are definitely leaning from my read of the tea leaves at the moment. Um, at which point, uh, Bitcoin truly acts like digital gold, right? And these products just are basically GLD for Bitcoin, which is kind of what we all thought they were going to be anyway. They don't live underneath the, the 40 Act or any of that. So that to me seems like the most likely outcome. Uh, whether or not that requires, you know, giant surveillance agreements and all that stuff, I think that there's a middle path here. Um, I just don't think it happens until, say, you know, January, February of 2023, we start having real conversations about it. I think uh, I actually think it may be that we get uh, sort of the, the regulation of stable coins before that. Okay, what about something perhaps a bit more realistic? So we got a question from uh, Bob Heinemann. So at Bob Heinemann USA, um, he says, look, I'm bearish on crypto and want an inverse crypto ETF. Well, you got one. <laughs> uh, I would not mind if there were a three times leverage one. So uh, to, to your point, we did get the first inverse Bitcoin futures ETF launching today from ProShares. But any chance leveraged products could be close behind that? Uh, I think you'd you'd actually find the issuers a, a little reluctant to go with something like like three x on something like this. I mean, you got to do do the math. No, no issuer wants to be put in the position where they're mathematically closing funds on a monthly basis uh, because something pops thirty three percent and you've now zeroed out the NAV of your fund. Uh, I think it's it's quite reasonable to think we're going to have pretty active. I mean, we've already got reasonable volumes in BITI today on the short side. I, I won't be surprised to see that, that you know, really develop a following. Uh, I could see maybe a one and a half X leverage version of it. Uh, but I mean, come on, how much juice do you really need in your life? <laughs> but do you think the SEC would actually approve one of those? So let's just say it is 1.5 times. Do you think they could get their head around that? 
Uh, I think it'd be hard for them to say no, given that like that's sort of a leverage level they've let almost everything go through with. Okay. No, I, I agree. I mean, I've said for a long time, if the SEC is comfortable with a CME-traded Bitcoin futures market, then they should be um, comfortable with uh, sort of derivative products based on that same market. Yeah. And it's it's with futures, it's so easy to do, right? Because you just under collateralize. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, okay. Before I let you go, this wasn't a Twitter question, but I've got to tell you, Dave, I get this question maybe more than any other question from people. And it's around what happens to GBTC's discount if and when an ETF yep. is approved, right? And, and and by the way, I want to be crystal clear here. Like, like, seriously, this is not investment advice. Everyone do your own homework. I'm not recommending this to anyone, period. End of story. However, Dave, the thought is that GBTC is basically um, free money sitting out there, right? So GBTC, last I checked, was at like a 35% discount. And the thought is if there's an ETF conversion then boom, an investor can quickly capture that, right? And it'd be a, actually a bigger return if you do the math than, than that 35%, right, to get back up to, to even. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts here? And I, I guess maybe more importantly, what is the downside to this potential trade, or, or I would say bet? Uh, so, the, so the upside is obvious. Uh, you know, yes, if you buy it now at a 35% discount and then in three weeks, uh, it is approved without question to be converted to an ETF on a date certain to be named in the future. Uh, the instant that happens, that thing trades right back up to fair value because everybody will, you know, everybody will be in on the game. You don't actually even have to wait for it to turn into an ETF. The fact that it will be turning into an ETF will make the thing peg right back to parity. Uh, so yeah, that is your potential upside. I would point out that's pretty much the cap of your upside, right? Um, you'll get to that point plus whatever move happened in Bitcoin itself because that would obviously, I think, be very positive for Bitcoin as the asset. So you would expect Bitcoin itself to also go up. The downside is there ain't no reason 35% is the floor, right? And so you could you could buy it now on that sort of lottery ticket uh, event risk uh, you know, basis uh, and in three weeks and be trading at 55% below fair value. There's, there's no there's no mechanical reason why it should trade at any price relevant to Bitcoin right now. Uh, it, there just isn't. There's no mechanism for it to unwind. There's no mechanism for Bitcoin to ever leave the trust. Uh, so it's, it is a bit of a, you know, I, I mean, I think I referred to it as a diamond hand Bitcoin motel, you know, like a roach motel, like the Bitcoins come in, but they don't go out, uh, short of, you know, corporate reorganization, shutting the thing down, like, you know, some, some other dramatic move to pry assets out of the fund, there's just no way that those coins are getting out. So there's really no way for it to ever arb out uh, unless it gets turned into an ETF. Well, and we should mention too, all the while, while you're waiting for that to happen, there is a 2% management fee as well that, that is being- Yeah, which is, which is not nothing. And, and the variability of the premium, um, you know, there are a number of folks out there that, that track that. Um, like Hedgeye has a Bitcoin tracker for that that looks at the, you know, the variability in the discount to fair value. Uh, it is really pretty unpredictable. There's no particular reason why 35% is either high or low. Uh, and so you could get your calls right here uh, and sort of buy in on a day that's a great time to get in for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin could rally 20% and then you could still go nowhere, right? So it, I think the idea that somehow you're buying like a closed-end fund guaranteed return because it's trading at a discount, it's just not how this thing works. Well, Dave, fantastic stuff as always. You know I love talking to crypto, so thank you for joining me this week. Uh, so much fun, so much fun. That was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. I'm now joined by Mark Yusko, founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management, who's a global asset manager overseeing around $2 billion in assets. And back in February, they launched their second ETF, the Morgan Creek Exos Active SPAC Arbitrage ETF, ticker symbol CSH. That followed last year's launch of the Morgan Creek Exos SPAC Originated ETF, ticker SPXZ. And I should note that Mark is also portfolio manager on the recently launched Advisor Shares Managed Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker CRYP. Now, I'm guessing most listeners are familiar with Mark, but if you're not, he's a longtime industry veteran. 
I would say, uh, perhaps best known for being at the forefront of institutional investing. He was formerly the chief investment officer of the University of North Carolina Endowment. Before that, he was a senior investment director for the University of Notre Dame Investment Office. And he's now on the line with me from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mark, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. No, thanks for having me, and thanks for such a great introduction. I appreciate it very much. Well, look, there's a lot I want to ask you about, especially on the crypto side of things, but let's start with this ETF that just launched earlier this year, the Morgan Creek Exos Active SPAC Arbitrage ETF. And look, I'm going to tell you right now, I know when some people hear SPAC, they're automatically going to think risky, and they're going to start thinking about some of the recent negative headlines around SPACs. So let's start by having you offer a few basics here, just actually on the SPAC structure, and then we'll get into the strategy, because I think when people hear more about this, uh, perceptions will change, shall we say. So first, just explain the basic structure of SPACs. No, look, it's, it's such an important point, and I, I'm glad you bring it up. It's, you know, the misinformation, and, and look, I don't, I don't think it's intentional. I just think it's, it's a little bit confusing. Uh, the media gets it wrong most of the time when they talk about SPACs. You know, they, they talk about the, the post-merger combined entities. Let's just, you know, take one like Virgin Galactic. Uh, Virgin Galactic is not a SPAC. It's an operating company. There was a SPAC. There was something called IPOB that Chamas put together, and he went out and he did a deal where he acquired an interest in Virgin Galactic, and uh, that company now is an operating company. It's just like we you know we don't call Amazon.com an IPO, and we don't call you know Coinbase a direct listing. You know that's how they came public. So Virgin Galactic is an operating company. DraftKings is an operating company. DraftKings is very different than Diamond Eagle Acquisition Corp which was a SPAC. So let's go back to the origin to the original purpose of a SPAC. A SPAC is called a blank check company. It allows uh, a sponsor to raise a pool of capital, basically like being a, a private equity person instead of raising from institutions or or other investors, you you raise from the public market. So you raise a pool of capital and then you go out and you find a, an acquisition target and you, you allow that company to go public by merging into your uh, SPAC and then you de-SPAC, right? You, you get rid of the SPAC and you create what's called a post-merger combined entity. Kind of a you know silly term, but that's what it is. And make a long story short, there are a lot of SPACs that exist. And when a SPAC exists, it is sold at, at $10 per unit. That, that money then sits in a trust. It sits in an, an inviolable trust and is invested in short-term T-bills or treasury securities. So it's one of the few things in life that you can say is, you know, you're guaranteed, other than a U.S. government default on those, those T-bills, you're guaranteed you're going to make a return on that cash sitting in trust. Now, the second thing you get as a SPAC owner is you get some warrants, and you get warrants in these post-merger combined entities. And if the post-merger combined entity does well, those warrants, which can be exercised at $11.50, may have some value. Now, the post-merger combined entity price falls, and it doesn't do well. Those warrants don't have value, but, but on average, those warrants have a little bit of value. So if you think about uh, a SPAC... It's a pool of capital invested in treasuries that then liquidates when the deal is consummated and the SPAC de-SPACs and the money either goes into the new company or as an investor in a SPAC, you get to decide you can take your money back. So SPAC arbitrage is this wonderful structural arbitrage that exists because I can buy a SPAC uh, at the IPO at $10, or, or I could even buy it in the aftermarket, sometimes below $10, because they, they go down below trust value sometimes. And then when the deal is announced, I can cash in my, my chips. I can cash in for $10 plus interest, and I keep my warrants. And on average, I can make you know low to mid single digit returns a very nice return. 
well, it doesn't sound like a very nice return. Well, think about it. This has got the risk of short-term assets like cash, and you're getting a return that's significantly better than putting your money in the bank. So if you think about maybe the biggest problem that I see for investors today, financial repression, you know, interest rates have been held down so long, inflation is running so hot, that money that sits in the safest part of your portfolio, cash, cash equivalents, you're basically making zero to 1%. It's all getting chewed up by inflation. It's a really bad trade. So arbitrage, whether it's convertible bond arbitrage, merger arbitrage, statistical arbitrage, there are a lot of different arbitrages. SPAC arbitrage is just another form. And CSH, is, we think, a smart alternative to cash. So you have the risk of short-duration treasuries and a return profile of maybe you know twice as much in terms of, of the long-term return. In the SPAC arbitrage ETF, this is actively managed. I'm curious, how often are underlying holdings uh, changing? So again, again, a great question. So there, remember, two ways that, that we would you know have... a an ability to enhance the return on the structure. So one is we could buy SPACs when they trade below trust value. So when, when, a, when a SPAC goes public, it, it trades at $10, you know, it goes public at $10, and you get a unit, you get the SPAC unit, plus you get your warrants. Well, that SPAC unit can trade up like it did with uh, you know, the Digital World Acquisition Corp., you know, the one that Trump was going to do, that thing traded all the way, I think, to $80, which is crazy, right? Why would anyone pay $80 for $10 of cash and treasuries? That makes no sense. But what they're believing is that the post-merger combined entity will be worth a lot of money. Well, but, but you can wait. You can wait until the post-merger combined entity, and you can buy that, um at a, at a cheaper price. But in the end, some SPACs will trade above trust value. We sell those, and then we try to buy uh, SPACs that sell below trust value. And on average, we pay you know, 960 970 980 uh, But we're you know, getting $10.20 of value. So that's a you know, built-in 4 or 5% return. So to answer the question specifically, you know, we, we don't actively day trade, but on average over the course of, of a month, you know, we'll we'll make a handful of, of transactions where we we sell the SPACs when they trade above their trust value and we'll we'll replenish the portfolio with SPACs that trade below their trust value. As I know you're well aware, the uh, SPAC market overall has clearly slowed down this year. There are fewer SPACs coming to market overall. Does that do anything in terms of your ability to find good arbitrage opportunities here? Again, really important question. So the nice thing about arbitrage is it's it's not like active investing in companies. So if I think about, you know, back to our original uh, ETF from a year ago, you know, the, the SPAC originated ETF, what you're trying to do there is invest in the companies, right? The post-merger combined entities, what we call the companies of the future. And, and you do that by trying to identify good sponsors who are good at picking good companies that are going to be these innovative, high-growth uh, leaders in the future. And you know, the challenge with that strategy in the past year is all growth stocks have gotten crushed really over the last year and really since last November. And, you know, you look at another innovative strategy like, you know, the ARC fund, you know, that's gotten absolutely crushed. Now that's a more concentrated portfolio than our SPXZ. And we're down about half as much as, as ARC this year. Uh, and that's just because equal weighting wins in, in down markets, but anything related to innovation has been really tough. But part of the challenge of investing in innovation is you actually have to determine 
which companies you think are going to be the companies of the future. Are we going to have more space tourists? Are we going to have more electric vehicles? Are we going to have more battery storage? Are we going to have more online gaming? With arbitrage, you don't have to be smart. Arbitrage is simply about discipline. If, if I, let's take convertible bond arbitrage. If I can buy a convertible bond and then I convert that convertible bond into equity when the equity price is above the conversion rate, again, I don't have to be smart. I can just convert and, and cash in on that arbitrage. In merger arbitrage, I can you know, buy a company that, that let's say, you know, Twitter, for example. Twitter, Elon was going to buy it for $54. I can buy it at you know, $50, and the risk is not market risk. The risk is does the deal actually happen? So it takes uh, one type of risk and converts into another risk. So you're not making a judgment on which direction the market's going to go. You're just making a judgment, is that deal going to close or not? Same thing with, with SPAC arbitrage. If I can buy a, a SPAC at $9.80 that I know when the deal is announced, I can cash in for $10.20 or $10.30. I've got a built-in return. And again, I don't have to be smart. I just have to be disciplined to make sure I'm constantly buying things either at the trust value $10 or below $10. All right, Mark. So you mentioned that anything related to innovation has been tough. I want to make sure we, we spend a few minutes here talking crypto. Uh, obviously, yep. you're extremely well-versed in this space. You formed Morgan Creek Digital Assets back in 2018. I know you've been an early stage investor in digital assets and uh, the, the technology surrounding this space. And as I noted at the top, you're also a portfolio manager on the Advisor Shares Managed Bitcoin Strategy ETF. And we can certainly talk about that. But w what's your take on everything we're seeing in crypto right now? I mean, we've seen some yeah, so high profile blowups. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, the bottom line in crypto is, is uh, crypto is an emerging technology. And emerging technologies have high levels of volatility. Why? Well, because of uncertainty about the future. The reason that innovation has been so hammered in the past year is you have increasing uncertainty and disparity of views on the future, right? We don't know how many space tourists there are going to be in the future. We don't know how many electric trucks are going to be sold. And so some people think a big number, some people think a small number. And when that dispersion is really high, you get high volatility. I'll give you an example. So Amazon.com, has been a company for 26 years. And in that 26 years, its volatility, stock price volatility, is 80%, 80. Interestingly, the same volatility as Bitcoin itself, 80%. Now, Bitcoin's only been around for 14 years, but in 26 years, the uh, Amazon.com has had a double-digit drawdown every year, including this year. The average, this is amazing, is 31%. Hmm. So on average, every year for 26 years, you've lost a third of your value because the value, you know, the price that people are willing to pay differs from the inherent value. And because there's uncertainty about the future outcome, you get the high volatility. Five times, Amazon dropped more than 50%, twice, 90%. And so I would say, well, when was the right time to sell Amazon? Well, that would be never. Well, but who bought it at the IPO and held to today? I always joke, Jeff, his mom, his dad, his ex-wife, and <laughs> Bill Miller. That's it. And that uncertainty around crypto today is, you know, rearing its ugly head in that there's a four-year cycle of volatility around the Bitcoin halving cycle. And you can go into the details of that. But the bottom line is the uh, halving just changes the number of rewards that are given to the the miners, the people that secure the network and make Bitcoin the safest, most secure uh, blockchain on the planet or computing system on the planet. And make a long, long story short, when people are really excited about that technology, that technological innovation, and that blockchains are simply operating systems that allow us to exchange value digitally for the first time, uh, just like the Internet made information digital. We didn't have to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. Um, and and cr incredible wealth 
was created in the internet boom, but we had our booms and busts. We had the boom in the late 90s. We had the bust in 2001, 2002. We had the boom in 2007, 8. And we had the bust in 9, 10. And now we're, we, had, we had a boom again here in the digital asset ecosystem and the bust. So what we did with, with CRYP is we said, you know, there's an interesting strategy called trend following, CTAs. Trend following strategies have been used for decades. In the traditional markets, they worked really, really well in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's been really tough for CTAs, managed future strategies, in the most recent decade because of high-frequency trading and, and a lot of choppiness and the decimalization and the spreads have narrowed. Well, in the digital asset market, particularly Bitcoin, that market tends to trend very well, both up and down, because human beings are still making the decisions. So we use a simple trend-following model to actively manage exposure to Bitcoin, and we try to have some level of cash when the trend is down, as today, and we try to be fully invested when the trend is up. Um, like it was, you know, last year, but we, we didn't start until this year. So we've been in a downtrend really ever since we launched. And today we're, we're about 50% exposed and we've generated very significant alpha versus just holding Bitcoin. And that strategy we've run as a hedge fund at Morgan Creek, uh, for three years now and have dramatically outperformed just holding Bitcoin straight. And then we launched the ETF a couple months ago uh, so the average non-accredited investor could take advantage. Mark, we just have about two minutes left here. On that advisor share uh, shares ETF, CRYP, the underlying Bitcoin exposure is obtained through Bitcoin futures ETFs or actual Bitcoin futures. The question I have for you is, do you have any thoughts on a spot Bitcoin ETF? And I covered this yeah, in pretty... Really, yeah, go ahead. No, really important point. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, the, the, in the infinite wisdom, maybe in air quotes, uh, <laughs> of the SEC, they have not approved a spot ETF, and, and I don't think they're going to approve it anytime soon. And so there were a number of futures-based ETFs that were launched. And while futures is not the best way to get exposure to digital assets, at least get you exposure. And so, yeah, I, I do think... At some point, they're going to be forced to approve a spot uh, future. But in the short run, there's a lot of political pressures against them doing that because, you know, if people can invest in digital assets directly, it has the potential to drain assets from the traditional financial services realm. And there are a lot of people who, who would not like to see that happen. So. I think there's going to be the ebb and flow, very similar to when, remember when GLD got held up, you know, there was going to be this, this futures market uh, for, for a, a gold-backed ETF, and they held it up and held it up and held it up, and, and eventually, after a three-year fight, uh, they got approval. So I think this fight will go on for a while longer, but eventually we'll get a spot ETF. Uh, and that'll be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. The only uh, difference with, with GLD versus a spot Bitcoin ETF is we're now, I believe, going on 10 years since the first spot Bitcoin ETF filing. So uh, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully it's not another uh, another 10 years. But Mark, a pleasure connecting. Really enjoyed hearing your perspective. Thank you for joining me this week. No, thanks for having me. Happy to do it anytime and really appreciate uh, all the great questions. That was Mark Yusko, founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
I'm now joined by Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs Distributors, who currently offers 46 ETFs, over $14 billion invested. And as it turns out, Pacer is actually the fastest growing issuer among the top 25 ETF firms this year. They've grown assets nearly 50% year to date, which if you think about the market environment we're in, that's a highly impressive feat. And Sean is now on the line with me from just outside Philadelphia. Sean, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. It's nice to be here. appreciate what you said. It's been, uh, in spite of a difficult environment, it's been a, a pretty good year for us here at Pacer. So, Well, you know, it's funny. You may recall, so you joined me early last fall, and one of the first things we talked about was the growth of your ETF lineup. So you were around $9 billion at that time which was actually double the amount of assets since we had last spoke prior to that in 2020. And, you know, now here we are, Pacer is pushing $15 billion in assets. I I guess talk about the ride here over the past uh, few years, and especially this year. I I I mean, you are the fastest growing ETF issuer right now. Yeah, you know, that's sort of, you know, if you took the year of COVID out, 2020, that's sort of been our trajectory. And, um, you know, it's easy if you have $100 million to double your assets to 200 But when you go from, you know, as you said, 5 to 10 which we did it sort of last year, and, and our goal is to get from 10 to 20 this year, that becomes more of a challenge. Um, I think um, if I were to attribute it to anything specific, the two things I would attribute it to is, number one, um, we spend an awful lot of time working with financial advisors. Uh, we have a very strong, uh, what we call a wholesaling effort, and we have 60-plus wholesalers across the country, and so that's a pretty big crew for a, a firm our size. But we believe that, you know, that the message that we're trying to deliver and the type of ETFs that we try to manufacture here that are our taglines being innovative, disruptive, and unique, um, that, that – sitting down with the financial advisor and, and ultimately helping them understand where it fits for their client in their portfolio is really important. And then the second thing is that we have a fairly diverse offering. You know, we, we started with a bunch of trend-following strategies, which we call Trend Pilot, and they did fairly well. And I know we're going to talk about them a little bit later. But the real big winner this year has been our Cash Cows series, which we use free cash flow and free cash flow yield to screen for stocks. Um, and they've held up particularly well so far this year, uh, with the exception of last week. Uh, you know, last week was kind of an interesting. It sort of felt to me, Nate, like you know we held held things off and were positive coming into last week in terms of performance on our large cap U.S. Uh, cow series product COWZ. And last week sort of felt like I don't think it's really quite the end, but it felt like sort of that capitulation. Everything goes so. We've had terrific performance on on the cows across the board, and that certainly has helped. And we've launched a bunch of factor-based ETFs like low volatility and high beta rotation strategy. And we started there about a year and a half ago with about $100 million, and we're almost a billion today. So It's amazing. Yeah, no, I was going to say, for listeners who are not familiar, I mean, Pacer just recently celebrated its seven-year anniversary. Uh, So it's not like you've been around here for 30 years on the ETF side to already be at you know, approaching $15 billion is remarkable. Yeah, we're we're really pleased. And we think, like I said, I think we can get to 20 by the end of this year uh, with, you know, with a little help from the market perhaps. Um, and then we'll see where we go from there. Then it gets, you know, really tough to continue to double. All right. So you mentioned the Cash Cow series of ETFs. Let's talk more about those. This is your, your largest ETF family, some $7, 8000000000 billion in assets. That's led by the Pacer U.S. Cash Cows 100 ETF that you mentioned, ticker COWZ. Um, you, you know, look, m- maybe using that as an example, explain the core investment approach with these ETFs. And, and then I'll add to that. I mean, I'd love to have you talk more about the importance of free cash flow, because I think about going back to, say, last year, 2020, a lot of the focus was on the future growth prospects of a company. It was all about potential. Now here we are. Investors want something tangible. To, to, to hold on to. So I'd also love to have you explain why free cash flow is important. Yeah, so the COWS series, and in particular COWZ, uses free cash flow yield as a screen. So we take a broad index, in the case of COWS, the Russell 1000, and we screen for the 100 stocks in the Russell 1000, X financials and X companies that don't make profits. 
for the 100 stocks that have the highest free cash flow yield. And free cash flow yield is the free cash flow a company generates divided by its enterprise value. And enterprise value, not to be too technical, but it's the market cap plus the debt minus the cash. So it's the total purchase price of a company divided into its annual return in terms of free cash flow. And that creates a, a percentage or a yield. And the higher the free cash flow yield is, we believe the cheaper that stock is relative to other stocks in the index. And so it's sort of a newer way to think about traditional value investing. You know, traditional value investing uses price to book. And in the world we live in today where 90% of the stock market's value in terms of market cap is based on intangible assets, things you can't see, like, you know, think about tech names or healthcare names or brand-based names. It's hard to measure them on a, on a price to book basis because they don't really have physical assets. And free cash flow and free cash flow yield gets you there. And so we tend to own a different suite of names in our value series than traditional value, which would be overweight financials and energy all the time and utilities. Uh, we we had a terrific return in 2021. We were up over 40%, so nearly double the market's return. We didn't own any energy in 2021 until the fourth quarter. And with the free cash flow growth in the energy sector, it's now become one of our bigger sector weightings. Um, but essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to measure how much you're paying in total for a stock and how much cash you're getting in return. And in a rising rate, rising inflationary environment, you have to discount future earnings. That's why growth is getting hurt so much today and why the overall stock market is getting hurt. There's almost an inverse relationship between rising rates and inflation and P.E. So we started the year with multiples on the broad market at 30 times. They've now come down to like somewhere between 17 and 20 times. That's 100% driven by people discounting the future earnings I'm going to get as opposed to getting paying attention to the current free cash flow that we're getting. And so I think we've been able to survive this downturn in the market pretty effectively because we're giving a current return in the terms of current free cash flow. And, then, and, and it tends to move you around from sector to sector based on what's going on sort of on a macro basis. So our, our big sector allocations are the, are the four big sectors that have done the best this year, but they, and there are allocations because they generate the most cash, which is healthcare, energy, materials, and staples. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we're wedded to those sectors or those names in those sectors. We obviously will follow the free cash flow. Um, and what, what's interesting is, is that technology was a big holding two years ago for us, and then now it's under 10% of the total portfolio. So free cash flow for investors who are worried about inflation and rising rates and how that affects the future earnings or the current economics of an individual company, the higher the free cash flow a company has, the better equipped they are to deal with rising interest rates because of their financing costs and rising inflation due to input costs. Sean, as investors think about their portfolio allocation overall, you, you made some excellent points there. But, of course, the, the backdrop to everything in the markets right now is rising rates and rising inflation. We saw the Fed hike rate 75 basis points last week trying to get inflation under control. You, you look at the markets right now, the S&P 500 is down, what, 22 percent, 23 percent year to date. Aggregate bonds are down 11 percent. Not much is working out, out there. Do you have any words of wisdom for uh, investors just in terms of overall portfolio construction or, or allocation? Yeah, be realistic. You know, we have this thing meant in our psyche called recency bias. You know, everybody is afraid that, you know, growth is going to bounce back. If inflation remains persistent and the Fed does what they say they're going to do, which hap I happen to think is the wrong thing, I don't think we're we're having high inflation because we have so much cash flushing in the system or that the economy is red hot. I think we have high inflation for two reasons. One is that energy prices are high as a result of the big energy companies pulling back on their production because they view this current environment as unfriendly to fossil fuels. And when they do that, the price of oil goes up, the price of natural gas goes up, but the money that they would spend trying to develop new sources goes straight to the bottom line because they're reducing their capital expenditure. So pay attention. The market is telling you that energy is a, a place that you should be thinking about allocating to, whereas two years ago we wouldn't have. We would have all wanted to be in growth. 
And then inflation is going to be, I think, a, a persistent problem. Um, the conflict in Russia and Ukraine doesn't seem to be a big deal, like to the average person. Like, you know, like what what does it really matter what they're doing over there? But the uh, amount of agricultural exports that typically come from that part of the world is somewhere between t- seven to ten percent of all of the, cr- the the key critical inputs to to, to traditional food based products, ex dairy and meat and and poultry. And when you remove that supply from the market, even temporarily, you see prices rise there. So, And then you throw in the mess that's going on on the supply chain side, and it's still not getting fixed, and it probably won't get fit for a while. Be realistic, and so pay attention. Take what the market's giving you as opposed to remaining static and hoping that what worked uh, last year or for the last five years will continue to work. And so rebalance your portfolio to higher-quality names that generate a lot of cash, that are in the right sectors with regard to what's going on from an economic backdrop. backdrop. Scale back your growth a little bit until we get inflation and interest rates under under control because they'll continue, I think, to remain under pressure because growth investments, if everybody should understand, is we're paying for future dollars' worth of earnings. And you have to discount those future dollars based on inflation and interest rates. If you're investing in companies that generate high current free cash flow, you're getting your dollars today, and they don't get discounted. So pay attention to what the market's telling you. React in your portfolio accordingly. Sean, just a few minutes left here. You mentioned the Trend Pilot series of ETFs earlier. Let's briefly touch on those. And it's interesting. You look at the market environment right now. These are doing exactly what they're supposed to do in taking some risk off the table. And for listeners who aren't familiar with these, these are seven ETFs, including the Pacer Trend Pilot U.S. Large Cap ETF, ticker PTLC, there's also a uh, U.S. mid-cap version, PTMC. You have a NASDAQ 100 ETF, PTNQ, and then there are a couple of uh, international options. There's also a bond option. Um, but, but, Sean, I looked at the current positioning on these. It's mostly uh, risk-off across the board. Do you, you want to just uh, explain the basics here and, and maybe talk about how they're currently positioned? Yeah, so they're, they're, as you said, they're basically all risk off at the moment. So Trend Pilot, the, the large cap product PTLC, follows the S and P 500. When the S and P 500 is above its 200-day moving average, we'll own the S and P 500. When it falls below, we start to move the portfolio to Treasury bills, with the idea that we want to provide some risk management to the downside. We entered that phase earlier this year where the portfolio, based on the signal we look at, the relationship between the S and P and its moving average indicated that we should be in T-bills. So I'm looking at, for example, the last one year's return on PTLC. It's up 3.5% and the S&P's down 11 And for advisors and for clients, having something like this in your portfolio um, does two things. One is it obviously manages the downside risk, as you just saw you know, or heard with those numbers. But two is it makes it easier for us to not get so panicked. And so the financial advisors who are using PTLC in a portfolio are using it for a part of their equity exposure in the event that something like what's going on right now happens where we start to go into a bear market cycle. Most investors emotionally, for the first part of that decline in the bear market, can sort of hang in there and they say things like, well, you know, we'll buy the dip and we'll put a little money. But eventually things get so bad that we, our emotions take over. And having Trendpilot in the portfolio, we know with the PTLC that if the market continues to go down from here, we will not experience any of that decline. And if the market recovers, eventually we'll go back in and own the market. So Trendpilot has been a, a core part of our overall ETF offerings here at Pacer ETFs. And as you said, they've done exactly what they're designed to do. It's kind of funny, uh, you know, a year and a half or two years ago, people were questioning Trendpilot and thinking, why do I need stuff like that in my portfolio when we're in the midst of a bull market cycle? Uh, (laughs) But we're getting taught today why it's so important to have something in your portfolio that manages your downside risk. And the easiest way for me to explain why people should be thinking about Trendpilot is two words, in case. In case this bear market gets worse than it already is. In case it's not a normal bear market, but it's one of those 50% decline type bear markets. If that's what happens, in case that happens, Trendpilot currently sitting in T-bills will not expose that part of that client's portfolio to any of that downside risk. 
and eventually the market will bottom, and it could go back up. The eight most important words to investors with relate relation to equities is the advance is permanent, all declines are temporary. We just don't know how temporary this one's going to be. But sooner or later, Trend Pilot will rotate back to stocks. But in the meantime, in case it gets really bad, there's a part of your portfolio that is 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 isolated and 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 protected from that downside risk to the market. Fantastic description of those products. It's funny. I always like how uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas describes these. So he calls these ETFs with airbags. I I, I just love that. But uh, Sean, always enjoy visiting. Congratulations on all the success. I love seeing it. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Nate, for having me. We'd love to be on your show. That was Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs Distributors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Capital Group. If you would like to learn more about Capital Group's ETFs, you can visit capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by longtime industry veteran, Joanne Hill. I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to cover a number of ETF topics. And then J.D. Gardner, founder of Aptus ETFs, is going to spotlight their lineup of unique active ETFs. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.